Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, everyone. It's Rodrigo Gordillo here welcoming you to another episode of Gestalt University. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Mike Herthler of Jacoby Capital, a large RIA firm based out of Pennsylvania. Mike's story is truly fascinating. He's a 35-year veteran in the financial services space and a true trailblazer that was way ahead of his time, for better or for worse. He came up during the heyday of the broker commission-based advisory model, where providing services such as estate planning, financial education, and flat fee portfolio management was completely outlandish. When he finally left the commission-based job that he got straight out of college to run a fee-based advisory firm, there were a ton of skeptics telling him that he would never make it under this new model. But of course, it didn't take long for the industry itself to follow suit. Yet, after almost four decades in the business, Mike tells us about the difficulties of the early years and how important the decision of remaining independent ultimately contributed to the firm's success. A student of behavioral finance and the psychology of markets, he remains passionate about financial literacy, uh, both for younger generations that he supports through local colleges, as well as the boomer generation, many of whom are his clients that are currently dealing with the challenges of retirement. In the podcast, he takes the time to talk a little bit about Charlie Munger, who introduced him to the concept of mental models and combining disciplines to improve problem solving. This ultimately led to an interesting encounter with his mentor at a distance that is worth the price of admission alone. It was through these lectures that Mike got introduced to the work of German mathematician Carl Jacobi, who inspired the firm's name, and one of the most important lessons that he took away from it, which is think through your major problems backwards, invert, always invert. We love this concept, as you guys may know. This is a great interview, and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Hi, Mike Philbrick from Resolve Asset Management. And today I have the pleasure and excited about the opportunity to sit and chat with Mike Herthler from Jacoby Capital Management. What city are we in, Mike? We're in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. A lot of people know Scranton. <laughs> oh, so we're just Scranton. outside of Scranton. So we're sitting down today to talk about a few things. Talk about the world of wealth management, the world of asset management, the world of investor behavior, financial literacy. So we're going to tackle a bunch of topics. If you've never heard of Jacoby Capital Management, you, you can Google it and search. It's very successful RIA here just outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania, in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Did I get that Wilkes-Barre, right? Wilkes-Barre, correct. Wilkes-Barre. See, I'm catching on. Crazy Canadian here in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And so we want to talk today about your journey, Mike. You've been in this business for a long time. You've seen many, many transitions come and go. You've kind of been on the cutting edge much of the time. And give us the journey of Mike Herthler and the journey of Jacoby and where you are now, where you started from. Sure. So when I got out of college, which was 1985, I started out as what was called then a stockbroker with a firm called Thompson McKinnon Securities in Wilkes-Barre. 
I was with Thompson McKinnon till 1990, and I believe they were the fourth largest what was called wirehouse firms then in the country. And one Friday, we went home and we came into work Monday and they were gone, much like a Lehman moment back then in 1990. The principals had made some leverage mistakes and every broker in the office, there was about 15, had to go to either it was called Prudential Base Securities or Dean Witter was each side of the block from us. So half went to Prudential Base and half went to Dean Witter. I went to Dean Witter. Oh, nice. So tell me, what was that like? Where were you? Were you married? Did you have kids? What was going on? Yeah, I got married and in the business at 22 years old. So I started both relatively young. So yeah, it was a difficult time period. I really didn't like the business. As a matter of fact, in that time period, I told my wife that I just wanted to go back to school and get my teaching certificate and teach and coach. I wasn't very interested in meeting sales quotas for financial products, et cetera. So that was 1985 to 1990. So back in those times, it was a commission-driven type business then where it was sales quotas regularly? A hundred percent commission and quotas. Yeah. It was pretty aggressive. It really didn't suit my temperament at the time. And doing some, back then there wasn't the internet or Twitter, but in one of the financial magazines, I saw an ad for, you could be basically an RIA type investor with a firm called LPL Financial. And I called them up in 1991 to ask if I could join. And basically they said no. I think you needed five or $10 million of assets and I didn't have it at the time. We'd just gone through the Persian Gulf War, et cetera, and business was bad. So I just kept the pressure on them and they let me open an office. Nice. So you just persistence. Correct. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like sales to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> begging. It was begging. <laughs> begging. I love it. So we're in 1991. You go for a cup of coffee at Dean Witter, but then you get the opportunity to actually start your own RIA at that point in 1991 with LPL, or was it a slightly different structure? Slightly different. So by RIA, I mean, they had a framework where you could act as what's called an IAR, investment advisor rep of their corporate RIA. But what appealed to me is the ability to charge a fee as opposed to sales quotas for commissions, et cetera. As an IRA at the time, you wouldn't have embedded commissions in anything that you were selling. Basically, you were a fee-only advisor at that point? Yes, yes, fee-only, yes. So that's an early adopter of that particular model, I would say. I know that people in town used to call us the broker in a box. You can't do that. You can't make a living off of not turning people's money over, et cetera. But yeah, that was kind of rare there. I think... I believe LPL now is like 17,000 advisors, some way, shape, or form affiliated with them. And I think there were 200 then. Wow. And they were the largest independent firm with 200 advisors. Amazing. So what was it like going out into the community with this sort of very different approach? Did you find that here you are more in a fiduciary role than probably 99% of anybody else in your community? Did you find that it was just a matter of getting in front of folks and saying, hey, the system's got a lot of embedded costs that maybe you don't know about. I'm just going to be upfront about it. Were people coming over the walls to join or were they a little bit more hesitant? What was your experience back then? No, people were very hesitant. Obviously, it was long before Bernie Madoff, but still, even without the brand names, it was difficult to get people outside of your network. So you kind of had to give up on... We have a big Procter & Gamble plant about 30, 40 miles from here. And I used to go out there and people that worked there from the time they were 18 years old, they became millionaires in their stock plant, like hundreds and hundreds of them. We could never get a client from a place like that, 40 miles. It was mostly just your inner circle that you could go to then. 
And so how did you grow the business? Yeah, that's a good point. Pure luck, really. I had some friends that were successful and they trusted us to bring some business to us. My wife is a nurse, worked at the local hospital and got in with a few of the doctors there and was able to start to build a business. Then in the mid nineties, just started working, getting involved in the community, doing what you could do, keeping it really simple, basic stocks and bonds, avoid it. Fortunately for us, a lot of the product sales of the 80s then were starting to, we use the term blow up. So it helped us with being able to go out and say, we don't represent any product. We don't manufacture any product. So we were able to use that to our advantage for a while there and gain some traction. That's great. And the name Jacoby, there's some depth to that. Tell me more about that. In 2007, the firm we were with, remember, we worked under their RIA. So that firm is LPL. So as the industry, as we all know how dramatically it's been changing over the last 10 or 15 years, the last year, three years. So if we fast forward to that period, 2007, there was a movement called the breakaway brokers, like people coming from brokerage firms and doing their own RIAs or going independent. So LPL, the firm that we were, was our custodian, they wanted to open up what's called a hybrid division. So you become your own RIA. So we always market it just under the name LPL. You could call it whatever you wanted, but we chose to keep it simple. So we had to come up with a name for the RIA because we had to become our own RIA. And that was, we came up with the name Jacoby Capital Management. So Carl Jacoby was an algebraist 200 years ago. The long story is back in 1994, I read a lecture There used to be this publication called Outstanding Investor Digest, OID, published out of New York. And it was interesting, this fellow did interviews with these people. And one week he went out and he listened to Charlie Munger do a lecture at USC, law school graduation. And the title of the lecture was Worldly Wisdom. Charlie Munger there talked about a lattice work of mental models, how you have to combine various disciplines. And he said, look, if you want to raise your IQ 50 or 60 points in life without having to be very bright. He said, do two things. Follow the wisdom of Carl Jacoby. Think your major problems through backwards. Invert, always invert. He said, that's a real simple process. What does that mean? Charlie always said, I just want to know where I'm going to die so I don't go there. Or we always say, like, if you want to lose 10 pounds a year from now, put yourself out to September 25th or whatever, 2020. Why didn't I lose 10 pounds? Well, I ate those cookies every night. Well, don't eat the cookies. He said, secondly, avoid extreme ideologies. So, And then he talked about adding psychology to your investment process, trying to, you know, the whole behavioral stuff that we talk about today. And again, that just resonated strongly with us, that lecture, and we kept it. It's must reading for everybody that comes to our office as far as workers, interns. To this day, there was actually two parts of it. I have a funny story with that. When we needed to come up with a name, all the names were taken. So the one day somebody said, we always say in this office, did you Jacoby that? Did you think it through backwards? And somebody said, what about that Jacoby? We looked, the name wasn't taken. So So you grabbed grabbed it. it. Yeah. And so the Jacoby, Jacobying the problem is thinking it through backwards. Can you give me an investment application of that or something, the diet one I got? So what would be a problem that you would Jacoby in the office? We're in the money management business side, but also the wealth advisory. So we get a lot of clients and they come in with a, say, a prospectus that they receive somewhere else. And it might have a lot of these uh, partnerships. If I recall back in the 80s, when I got in this business, the guys in the brokerage firm used to sell these things. And then they would use the term, oh, don't blow up your book. I blew up my book. And I say, just read the prospectus. So if it seems too good to be true or too difficult to overcome these eight or 10% annual fees. So when a client comes in and we think it through backwards, say for a uh, some type of 
high yield business development company, we read the prospectus, we say, well, you know, with high yield bonds at 5% and the fact that the annual fees here are eight, if you think this through backwards, you're losing 3% a year, you're probably going to have a problem. So we don't know what the future is. We don't, right? We don't know what companies are going to be disrupted or not. But I think trying to invert helps us understand what not to do. Right. A big part of winning longer term seems to be not making those major mistakes. Correct. What do they call that? A war of attrition almost. Let everybody else blow themselves up and you just keep that steady pace going. And how do you keep the clients behaviorally on track with that? Because it's so distracting as an individual investor. You've got all these shiny new buttons being produced, whether prospectus this and my buddy's got that. How do you and Jacoby Asset Management help the individual investors sort of stay the course? Well, I like you. We wish we had the answer to that. That's the magic formula. We actually, back in the 90s, we started looking at, there's certain research firms out there. We use Ned Davis research a lot for various sentiment polls. And it's interesting because when everybody's fearful, we have fear. When everybody's greedy, we feel the same greed. It's, and we let our clients know that we're human and we make the same mistakes and more and worse than you sometimes. So if you allow us to try to quantify as much as possible and we try to preempt their decisions, for example, we say, look at when when this happens and things are really bad, I'm going to come to you and say, here's where we are. Remember I told you when people feel Buffett's teacher, Ben Graham taught him, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when they're fearful. That's really hard to do. That's a lie we all tell ourselves and people don't do it. But if we could try to quantify and, and a little bit of follow some data and information on it, maybe we could turn a few people to say, maybe now's not the time to liquidate. It's the time to add. We, like you, we do our best efforts there, but it's really difficult. You point out, I think, one of the very important points in thinking fast and slow, it's Traversky and Kahneman. Ryan Kahneman points out that just because you now know about these phenomena, these behavioral vulnerabilities, does not mean you're immunized against them. No. In fact, it's just the opposite, that you may feel emboldened that they don't now apply to you because you know about them. And I think you really succinctly and humbly put that. No, they apply more to us. We're sitting there with other people's monies and their behaviors coming at us and we're trying to do optimal decision-making and it's hard. I think Kahneman was asked in a lecture when he wrote that book, and I would highly recommend that all of Kahneman's writings. Somebody said to him, so I'm in the financial advisory business. What should I do? And he deadpanned and he said, nothing. <laughs> it's perfect. It's impossible, right? It's perfect. And you mentioned some Charlie Munger lectures earlier. I just want to make sure we get those so people can refer to them. I know he's since written a book and sort of that stuff, so it's probably in his new book, but is there videos? No, it's not, but we have it on our website or we'll re-put it up, but it's an interesting story. So these lectures were done at USC in 1994, and again, they were called Lessons on Elementary Worldly Wisdom. He talked about his latticework of mental models. He used the quote, if you only have one discipline in life, you go through life like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. So uh, as only Mr. Monger could do, he's brilliant. So back in 2008, when we had to get the name Jacoby, and I needed to get permission from him, we were doing a website to put his lecture on the website. So we called out to Berkshire Hathaway and asked if they could connect us, not to Mr. Monger, but to somebody and to who we would write to to get permission. So the lady that answered the phone said, hold on a second. And I heard, hello. And I'm like, oh, who's this? And he's like, who's this? And I said, well, this is Mike. What do you want? 
And I said, well, I'm looking for someone to get permission from Mr. Munger. He said, what do you want? And I said, well, Mr. Munger did a lecture at USC, and I'd like to put it on my website. It's Jacoby Capital Management. He said, send me a letter, tell me what you want, and I'll take care of it. I said, well, who are you? He said, it's Charlie. I started talking probably for about three or four minutes, thinking I'm talking to the guy, my mentor, if you will, you know, that doesn't know this. And it wasn't until a couple minutes went by that I realized he had hung up on me as soon as he... <laughs> so uh, we sent him the note, and we have it in our office now, a note, please feel free, good luck to you, Charlie. So, oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, he and I don't know if Buffett bought Charlie Munger, I don't know if we should be saying this public, but he answers his phone. That. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so let's get on that level. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's going to change after this. Now, he was sure. only 87 then, so yeah. maybe he stopped. He stopped. I love it. Well, they say Buffett, he's got an open schedule all day long, so we should just start lobbing calls into him. <laughs> that is amazing. So you start in 85. You go from brokerage house to IRA. IAR. IAR, I-A-R rather. Yeah. And then you set up your own shop in 08 to RIA. Mm-hmm. What happens next? What happens in the last 11 years? Or any further groundbreaking advancements for the business and yourself? We're thinking about partnerships with firms like yours to try to scale a little larger. We're in a small town. We opened an office outside of Philadelphia. If we could continue to find quality people, as such as Resolve Asset Management, I told you one or two other partnerships that we formed, I think we could continue to add value to people's lives and therefore hopefully continue to grow. I think there's been some, as I said, we're a money manager slash wealth advisory firm, and there's been some wealth advisors in the last couple of years that have joined us, and there's a few more, a lot more kind of, that want to join us now. So that could be the next level of growth. Right. So you've opened the office just outside of Philly. So when you're talking to these other wealth advisors, what is it that's missing in their life? When they come to Jacoby, what is it that they're hoping to achieve? What role does Jacoby help fill for them? Yeah. So our saying here, and it's always been, if you work here, we have 30, 32 people now between the two offices, is it's a safe place to work. By a safe place to work, everybody's free to grow. Everybody, we have seven or eight licensed people that all now are in the six figures of earnings that started out at twenty-five, dollars $26,000 operations people. By safe, you're free to grow here. Nobody could stop you. Nobody will stop your ideas. It's a very open-minded place and you're free to grow how you want to grow. And we've been really fortunate and lucky. We have no turnover. You met our receptionist. They're 83 and 80 years old. We have a 21-year-old. We now have 22-year-old to just start it. We have six people, 30 and below. So that's been really refreshing and rejuvenating. And these younger people have just been so almost inspirational with their ideas and their thoughts, and they want to grow. That's great. And how do you mentor them? What's your role? Maybe you don't even know how you might be mentoring them. I mean, I've had some interactions with you and I just, you ooze credibility and honesty. So how do you feel your interaction is with those folks? I think it's pretty in-depth. It's, I don't want to say that this is an easy place to work. Like I said, I use the term safe. I mean, we're fast paced. We're trying to keep up with the digital world and all the competition that's out there. I mean, the competition's at every corner. So we always say that in here, it's again, we're going to provide, it's going to be safe on all realms. But on the other hand, you have to work hard and produce by produce, not produce like revenues or business, what your operations job, you're this, like we're Uh, Right now, under advisement and management, we're a billion two or so. So, I mean, there's like a lot of responsibility and we take that responsibility seriously. 
that's a lot of lives that you're touching and impacting. Yeah, I told you not to talk about what we have a complex model in the sense that after 34, this is my 35th year, I think we have the audit we just did, 15, 1,600 families that count on us in one way, shape, or form. So we take that very, very seriously. I love it. So when you're dealing with individual investors, how do you start that off? How do you keep them on that track? So you've got a model, you've got some ways in which you approach the investing problem to make sure that you can keep a reasonable return. But tell me what you do when you walk through. So I'm a new guy. I've just sold a business or have a package or looking to review. What is my interaction like? So usually we start out talking, as everybody does, about your risk tolerance, capacity, and need, right? Like how much can you tolerate volatility? What's your capacity? How much capital do you have for that? And then what's your need? So somebody that has a million dollars and needs $130,000 and has zero risk tolerance, they've got a problem, right? So we have to have that conversation with them. But after that, we construct a portfolio of recommendations for them. Right. And you've got a number of proprietary models that you're using in your in your systems and have been pretty successful, I understand, too. Brag a little bit. Yeah. I think one thing I'm proud of is that if anybody came to us, and I could say this, and followed our models and were with us at least 18 months, they would have never left with less capital. Right. If that okay. makes sense. And that was the January 2008 till 18 months later. So after 35 years of I think not hurting anybody, that makes you feel better than like things just happen okay then. I'm sure you've 35 years, do you have clients for 35 years at this point? Yeah, actually we just went through an audit from the SEC and they asked us what our average client age is. And I said, well, I'm 56 and I've been doing this since I'm, so there's, and when I was 22, they were all somewhat older than me. So they're somewhat older than 56, but we'll get you that number. Uh, That's great. That's great the long-term relationships that grow out of this business are, I think, one of the benefits of being in a business that has such long-lived relationships. It's pretty neat. The biggest benefit by far, yeah. I think you mentioned to me you still had some 40-year munis on the books that were rolling off from when you first got in the business. Yes, yeah, yeah, I did. Back then, I said you would have to cold call people. You were just given a desk and a phone book. And Mr. Mike, we have this bond. It pays 10%. And interestingly, people didn't want 10% 40-year bonds then because they were waiting for rates to go back to 14 or 15 because they had just come down from 15, 16% to 10. That is the behavioral monster again. Yeah. Isn't it? It's just what everybody wants to do. Maybe it may not be the thing to do. Anyway, that will be something that I think if you're in this business that you'll be dealing with, I'll be dealing, we'll be dealing with forever. Who would ever thought those rates would go to 1.5%? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. In right in Denmark, you can get a mortgage with a negative yield on your mortgage. Is so that it, right? Yeah. Wow. It's a staggering moment in time. Well, we'll see how it all works out. It's going to be, uh, it'll be an interesting next 10 years. So you think about when you got in the business in 85, that was one version of the business. And then you fast forward 10 years to 95, you've moved the business, you fast forward again to 2000, 2005. What do you think the business is going to look like in the next 10 years? Well, everybody knows that there's going to be more fee compression that we're talking about that, right? The markets, the vanguards, iShares, et cetera, are pushing that, which is good. I think the fintech space that is so prevalent now and growing and obviously growing in the tools, I think if a wealth advisor, even a money management firm isn't reinvesting back into their business, a pretty large amount, you're probably a dinosaur. I would guess how we're 
speaking to people, how we're communicating with people, how we're advising our clients 10 years from now, what we're presenting to them and how we're giving to them is going to be a lot different than it is today. So communicating with them, I know you're a big proponent of financial literacy. What are your thoughts there? So we're going to communicate with them differently. There's, I mean, I observe it. There's a pretty significant gap between what the average individual sort of understands about investing and investing itself. So maybe you get help. What do you think the key sort of pillars are in the fight for financial literacy? What do we need to do as an industry? What do we need to do as professionals in this industry? How do we help? There are a lot of financial literacy programs out there now because we've actually sponsored three colleges, two locally here in Wilkes-Barre, Wilkes and Kings and Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where I'm a grad. We're about two years into it. We're trying to build up their programs we go, we speak, we make sure everybody has a, we pay for subscriptions to the Wall Street Journal, Barron's. We run trips to New York City to Dow Jones for them to meet the editors and the writers for Dow Jones. They have the stock picking software, which I'm iffy on. Oh, you pick these stocks, which ones win? We're, we're trying to do, come out more with valuing businesses. And then interestingly, we just hired a millennial to run those programs for us. And her first blog post should come out pretty soon, but it's on how to basically budget. One of her first pieces is going to be on subscription creep, your subscriptions that you have, your cell phones. Your, it's all the great businesses that we invest in, the companies, we want them to have a subscription model. Well, those businesses, they want you to be a subscriber and you have to watch those fees creep up on you pretty quickly. That's interesting. And so you started uh, a couple of years ago. So getting that basal sort of budget mentality going. And so how does it work? Does it go into the schools and grabs the college kids at sort of that level to teach them that? Does it encourage enrollment in the business of finance as well? No, it goes into the school and tries to encourage them. We set up booths and tables to make sure they sign up for their subscriptions free. Right now, we're building out a portal, and we hope for it to be interactive and behavioral. Behavioral in the sense, you know, gamification, you get badges, et cetera, for debt repayments, improving your credit scores. It's interesting. We have a couple... Geisinger Hospital is here in town and there's a a lot of new residents and they come out and they have obviously a lifetime of huge earnings power, but they have a lot of debts, medical school, undergrad. And we're trying to get these 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds when they're in undergrad and start teaching them about credit scores, how to improve your credit score, 1% interest rate cost you over time, how to repay your debt. When I say about how we communicate, what software tools I was reading this morning, SoFi is a website you could go to certain in the the software programs that are tools that allow you to average up. You know, you go get a Starbucks, it's $4, put five, a dollar towards your debt. Just to, again, behaviorally get people thinking about the long-term ramifications and we'll show the charts what debt costs over time. It's the basic, hey, save money and pay off your debt. It just doesn't behaviorally work. You have to get in their lives now and you have to have, with the kids, peer pressure, like the gamification, other kids, youngsters are doing better by saving, et cetera, and that works. It's amazing how it's the old eat less, exercise more. Everyone should be in yeah, fantastic shape. It's mm-hmm. so easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it actually reminds me of Adam, my business partner. Many people know Adam. Uh, his dad is a dentist and retired dentist now. But I remember him telling us the story of the most important financial advice that he had received. And that was from a financial professional and sat down with Mr. and Mrs. Butler at the dinner table one evening. And he just graduated from dentist school. So he had 
all of the debt that comes with that, had launched the practice, so he has the debt that comes with that. He also has the entitlement that so many highly educated individuals have where they feel that I deserve this. I've made it. I have my license now. And it's a license to print a pretty good living for a long period of time. And so often they'll unleash an absolute fury of consumption because they've suffered through an extra four, eight years of school, the expense that comes with that, and they want to actually enjoy life a little bit. And the advisor told him, just wait one year. Take all the income from this first year and pay off all of the things. Just wait one year. Just continue to live like a student for one year and don't unleash the consumption until the debt's gone. And he said that advice made all the difference. Yeah. It's very good advice. Solid, solid, yeah. I've seen things like that where people say lottery winners don't do anything for six months or else you'll spend it all. But it's just interesting that that one moment in time, the advice was offered and taken. So, so many times, as you say, it's got to come with something. You said the gamification aspect or the group, getting the group together so that you've got the peer pressure. Peer pressure is a motivator. It is something that is very unique and the the behavioral side of that is brilliant. I think what I may add, and it's important to try to attract people at a young age into good behavior, financial behavior. What's really interesting is we all say we're going to educate our clients and we know behaviorally, et cetera, that's really difficult because it's complex projects, complex problems and solutions. So I think we're also trying to work on our portal now for, if you will, like education for the baby boomers, because we're the country, the United States is in this experiment now. The 401ks are 25 years old. So this is the first time people are hitting retirement age where they're responsible for their pension and their pension payments. And one of the first, I know, subjects that we're going to approach is sequence of return risk. And we know there's this huge movement to, they just put money in US stocks and you're fine. And there are many periods where there's been really not so good sequences. And the industry shows people these 100-year charts. And we do these 100-year Monte Carlo simulations. And we say everything's going to be just fine. And the reality is there are these 15, 17-year periods. And I have found in my career, people invest in probably about two 15-year periods. So when you hit... In your 50s, if you start at young like you did as far as your children, they might be in college now. You may have saved, had that college paid for. You're in your prime earnings year, so you save some money, 50 to 65, 66. 65, 66, 67, 70, you retire, you stop. So then you have this decumulation phase, and that's a 15-year period. If this experiment that we're in right now with the boomers, et cetera, going through that are responsible for their own pensions, there are two 15-year periods that if we get either one of them wrong, we don't have a chance to do this over. And I think like we can't forget about the literacy, the financial literacy that needs to be given to people to understand what they're invested in, what are those risks and rewards. What We've just had this wonderful 10-year run in the large-cap U.S. stocks. So I tell a little story here. Of, if I retired in 1990, bought those S&P 500, took out 8%, paid my advisor 2%, 10 years later, everybody's happy. I got my 80000 a year. They've My account's worth a million four. You come in, same advisor, say, give me the same things that Mike Herthler had. They're wonderful. You walk in 10 years later, he says, what are you doing here? 
Like the most, you say, well, <laughs> Money's want, gone. Isn't that 400? No, it's gone. They're the same great. Co- and I think there's potentially, we're at all time high valuations, not to get in this on stocks, bonds, everything in the world. So there's a potential sequence of return risk that I'm not so sure the average person understands. Yeah, we would concur. So when you go through sequence of returns, there's that high risk zone five years before retirement and five years after retirement where large losses in a portfolio have significant impact to the portfolio because you're going to be taking money out, i.e. the portfolio is in decumulation. And so the volatility of the portfolio becomes as important as the returns of the portfolio. If you've got lots of volatility and you're taking money out, well, in the extreme example, you're taking out 10%, let's say, which is way too high, but the portfolio goes down by 50%. Well, then you've got to take your income out. Let's say you take out 10%, so 5% comes out. 45% doubles the next year. Well, that's $90. That volatility gremlin eats away at the potentiality of your returns. And as you've said, we have a period of time where if anyone goes back and looks at the financial tables that we print, which show the 10-year return, they're going to see a really good 10-year return because there has been no correction in the last 10 years in equity markets. And then they're going to extrapolate that. We've got a couple of behavioral biases happening. We're extrapolating into the future and we've got overconfidence in those numbers. And it's a dangerous mix, especially for 10,000 baby boomers a day that are flipping into retirement. I think it's very challenging. The 4% rule, another example of, well, you could take out 4%, but what was the average interest rate over the last hundred years that that 4% rule was based on? Yeah, it had to be six, six seven. Yeah. Right. What is it today? One and a half. One and a half. That's 40% of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting, right? So if you're going to go market cap-based portfolios with very low fees, with 1.5% starting yields and very high valuations, I wonder about what the outcome... I think you have to try harder. I think you have to do other things. And to your point, financial literacy is probably most important for baby boomers whose lifestyle depends on them funding it via those savings. Yeah, they're not going to get a mulligan in golf. Like there's no do-overs here. Again, we don't know the future, but perhaps it's good to think about a range of possible outcomes. And I don't think people do a good job of thinking about ranges of outcomes and what they have to do differently and defensively, et cetera. Probabilistic thinking. That should be a course taught as maybe that's a 301 financial literacy course. (laughs) (laughs) The cones of probability. I think something that you taught me is Look at the key is what you try to do at Resolve is uh, realized returns. And that's so important. People talk about track records and this. No, it's what did you make and keep? Right. What was the stat from Peter Lynch? Yeah, he had said that in his 10-year period where he made 23 or 24% in his first book per year, the average investor in his fund lost money. That being said, the person that did a complete round trip, bought and sold, lost money. Wow. And so- Again, it's about, we always say at Resolve, we want to be in the Hall of Fame of realized risk-adjusted returns because they have to be realized by the individuals who are investing. And I I think as I speak with you, you have the very same view. I mean, it doesn't help if you've got a track record that nobody participated in. You know, truly, if the tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there to hear it, it didn't fall. In the world of investing, if you have a great track record and no one participated... And no one participated. We always say if the industry would be a little more honest and nice as far as when they present something and say, by the way, we didn't have that and you didn't have that (laughs) track record. Like right now they present whatever large cap US stocks, but 10 years ago they had hedge funds. They didn't have large. So 
a lot that's sold at the present time is something that nobody had. Very much. People buy, a lot of time investors invest, looking at the return as though they had it. When they buy it and they say, well, that, that's the return I want to experience. Well, that's the past return. It's not the forward return. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be challenging times. I think that those who succeed are going to probably seed with some degree of unconvention in their portfolio. They're going to have to do things that are a little bit different in order to try and meet their obligations retirement-wise or pensions and endowments from their constituent obligations. It's going to be a an interesting time over the next 10 years. Any final thoughts you have? Well, I agree. I appreciate your time. And I have to say, when thinking unconventionally outside the box, that lattice work of mental models a little differently than I think what you're doing at Resolve. We're very interested in our partnership. It's refreshing to find people like yourselves that are thinking about these problems and coming up with solutions for people. And we appreciate that. That's exciting. We'll keep our nose to the grindstone on that and look forward to future chats. Same. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.